Uh, several months ago, I started a conversation with a guy named Perry Garza. Perry is a rising senior at Mid-Atlantic Christian University in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, which is my alma mater for undergrad, and a great college for, as, as, as just prepared a lot of young men to become preachers, young ladies to do all kinds of ministry things, missionaries, all kinds of great stuff, and uh, we made available an opportunity to have a summer internship. Well, Perry was someone who reached out to me. I loved him the minute I met him and got to have some good conversations, and he's been with us for since the end of May, I guess, middle of May. Uh, he's staying with James and Dixie Smith, and so we want to thank you guys again for hosting Perry all summer. Uh, but I'm sure it's not too much trouble because Perry's a pretty awesome dude. Uh, one of the things he wanted to accomplish while he was here this summer was to work on his preaching skills. And I said, okay, we can do that. So today, Perry's going to continue our teaching series through First Timothy. But I wanted to introduce him like that. Uh, he wants to be a youth minister. Come on up, Perry. A uh, youth minister in a church sometime. He's working with our kids a lot right now. Give it up for Mr. Perry Garza. Thank you. Before we get started, though, um, last week we had uh, camp, uh, First Intermediate, and many of our venture kids were there, and many of the church family sent them uh, letters and well wishes, and so the campers have made a thank you card uh, to venture, so I will give it to Pastor Chris, but that is, again, from all the campers who went and got uh, the mail that y'all sent uh, to the church, uh, just expressing uh, their thanks. So, um yeah. Um, again, my name, uh, Perry Garza, like Pastor Chris just said. He sort of stole my thunder because I was going to go through this. <laughs> um, I'm here for the summer, and um, I just want to start by giving a huge thanks again to Pastor Chris and to uh, the elders who made that decision who said, yes, you can come alongside us, you can learn, uh, you can grow, you can get experience. So thank you to them, but also to the entire church family um, as parents, I know that your children are the most important parts of your life, and so to allow me to come alongside and to work with them and to hopefully have some form of influence over them, that's not something I take lightly. And so, again, I say thank you. <sighs> but if there's something else that you guys may not know about me, it's that I am not an athlete. <sighs> I am just bad when it comes to sports and physical activity. Um, I enjoy competition and I love playing games. And so anytime people are playing basketball or throwing a football, I'll be one of the first to hop in. Uh, but my athletic ability doesn't really match up to my desire to play and to have fun. And, you know, Silas and Ty have reminded me of that a few times when they say, Perry, you're just tall. You're not good. You're just tall. <laughs> um, but it brings me back to a time during quarantine. Uh, me and my two friends, we were stuck in a house for two weeks. And so before we locked ourselves away, we stopped at Walmart and we bought a football. And day in and day out for hours on end, that's just what we did. We, uh, we played football, we threw it back and forth, and they would go 30, 40 feet away, and I would throw it and it would go about 10 feet and hit the ground. And so after a couple tries, my friend finally came over and he said, Perry, you don't know what you're doing, give me that football. And he said, this is how you put your fingers on it. This is how you hold it. This is how you throw it. This is when you release it. And I wasn't all of a sudden Tom Brady. I wasn't throwing any Super Bowl winning passes. But I was able to get the ball in the vicinity. And occasionally there would be a nice spiral on it. Um, John, my friend, set an example for me on how to throw that football. Um, I'm sure that we can all think of times in our lives where somebody has come alongside us and set an example for us, showed us how to do something correctly. Maybe it's our fathers who showed us how to change a tire or change the oil in our car. Maybe it's our mother who showed us how to make uh, her favorite homemade recipe. Maybe our scout leader who showed us how to tie a particular knot. 
Um, we can all think of times where uh, examples have benefited us, but we can also think of times, on the other hand, where the opposite happened. Uh, it's Father's Day, so I'll pick on the dads, the men in here. I'm sure there's all been a time where we were trying to put something together, maybe a piece of furniture, and we pick up the instructions and we say, we don't need them, and throw them to the side, and 20 minutes later, we're nowhere closer to being done, and we're like, yeah, we should have looked at the example on the instructions. Or students, uh, maybe you've sat in class before, and you get the test passed out, and you stare at it, and you're like, wow, I have no clue what I'm doing. I should have listened to the example problems, right? Uh, but even we can think of instances uh, that are a little bit more serious. Maybe you've heard stories of prisoners who say, yeah, growing up, I didn't have that good example, that role model set before me, and so I've made some bad decisions. Or maybe you've heard stories of abusers who say the only example set before me was one of pain and hurt, so in turn, I inflict pain onto others. We can think of times where examples have taught us and we've grown and they've been good and we've benefited, but we can also think of times where we had no example or we had a bad example and so something negative happened. And we understand this principle. And the cool thing is that uh, God seemed to understand that principle and also think it was pretty important because there's an entire chapter in the Bible dedicated to this idea of, se of setting examples. So if you have your Bibles with me and you would like, you can flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, like Pastor Chris said, we've been going through a teaching series on the book. If you haven't been here the past couple of weeks and you're sort of unfamiliar with it, that's fine. Uh, basically, the book of 1 Timothy is a letter. It's written by Paul. He's uh, one of the earliest uh, church fathers, uh, New Testament author. He wrote many letters. And he writes this letter to Timothy, who was his disciple, uh, one of his students. They established a church at Ephesus, and Paul had to continue along his journey. But he left Timothy behind uh, to be a leader at the church. And some problems were arising in the church, and so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, basically explaining how to address certain problems, uh, how to be a good church leader, uh, what systems to set in place for other church leaders, uh, just basically how to handle uh, this, this new role and the position that he finds himself in. So we're just going to dive right in, again, 1 Timothy chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars, who consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer." Wow. So Paul begins by first stating this problem that Timothy is facing. Uh, he says, there are people who are departing from the faith. Sounds pretty serious. Uh, most scholars agree this likely isn't talking about salvation faith. It's not that Christians are just completely turning away from God and giving up on their faith as a whole. Uh, but faith here is likely referring to correct Christian teaching and doctrine. So people are renouncing, rebuking, turning away, abandoning correct Christian values, and it's because of these false teachers who are deceiving others. Uh, these are incorrect uh, thoughts and ideas uh, that are being told purposefully. It's not just people who are having a slight misunderstanding or people who are making an error in judgment and so they're teaching something wrong by mistake. These are people who are doing this on purpose uh, because there are spiritual forces at work here. The enemy is using people with seared consciences, with seared hearts, people who can no longer tell right from wrong. Uh, one, other, one author puts it that they have become representatives of the devil. 
and they're teaching these false things. But what exactly are they teaching? Stuff about abstaining from meat and uh, forbidding marriage. What is all of this talking about? Well, there's basically two main suggestions as scholars suggest. I'm going to run through both of them real quickly. So the first idea is that this false teaching was essentially the same as the Corinthian meat problem. Uh, that's another problem in one of uh, Paul's letters to the Corinthians. But basically, uh, it was this issue that some new believers were having uh, consuming meat that had been sacrificed to false gods. So in this culture, there was basically a god for everything, uh, for day, for night, for food, uh, fertility. Uh, anything you could think of, there was a god for it. And so people would worship these gods. They would sacrifice, make sacrifices to them, most often meat. But oftentimes, after meat was sacrificed to these gods, uh, they would then turn around and sell it in the marketplace. And so new believers who used to be heavenly involved in this type of pagan worship uh, were having trouble eating this meat. It was sort of weighing on their conscience. And so these teachers popped up and were like, hey, uh, we can't eat the meat. They were forbidding people from eating it. And um, Paul says, that's nonsense. Everything that God created is, is for good. Uh, there's a place, uh, he says, for protecting the weaker brother. But overall, this idea that we can't eat meat is absurd. So that's the first suggestion. And the second suggestion from scholars is that uh, this was an early form of Gnosticism. That's a big word, but it's really just a belief system that says everything spiritual is good and everything uh, of the flesh or bodily, physical is bad. And that includes desires. So the desire for food, the desire for sexual intercourse is wrong. So abstain from certain food, abstain from marriage and, and sexual intercourse. That, that could be what these false teachers were teaching. The truth of the matter is that we really don't know exactly what they were teaching. Uh, it could be this issue of not eating and sacrifice meat. It could be that we have to deny all desires of the flesh. It could be something entirely different. But again, uh, we see what the problem is, the main issue in verse 1, that people are departing from the faith. Uh, because of deception, people are being turned away from truth and ultimately being turned away from Jesus. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Chris introduced us to the idea of uh, context and timeless truths, timeless principles. Uh, we all know, or at least I hope we all know, I'll tell you now if you don't, that the Bible was written uh, by a particular person to a particular person or people uh, for a particular reason. And the connection between those three sort of forms, uh, the, the context of Scripture. Uh, even still, though, there are truths and principles that we can take out of that and apply to our lives today, right? We know this, timeless principles, timeless truths. And so we're not facing the same contextual problem that we read here. I'm sure that after the service today, some of us are going to go out to eat and we're going to enjoy a nice juicy burger, right? We're not wondering if we have to abstain from, from meat or not. But the root of the issue is deception. People are being deceived. And when we walk out of this building, we encounter people in our communities, in our workplaces, believers and unbelievers alike, that the enemy is telling lie after lie to every day, trying to deceive them, trying to drive them away from the truths of, of God, the truths of Jesus, the truth of the Christian faith. And that's the problem. We can all relate to that. But Paul's a good teacher, and just like any good teacher, he doesn't just present a problem and say, well, figure it out, Timothy. He sets up this problem. And then he provides a solution. So let's keep reading and see uh, what truths we can get out of this. First, verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. So Paul tells Timothy, 
here's how you can be a good minister. You have to point these things out to your brothers and sisters. And what are these things? Maybe he's talking specifically about what he's just said regarding uh, food and marriage. Maybe Paul's talking about everything that he's, he's written so far in this letter. Uh, we don't exactly know. Uh, but the idea is that these warnings that I'm giving you, Timothy, these teachings that I'm giving you, you can't keep them to yourself. You have to share them with those around you. Uh, you have to teach others. You can't, you can't keep it to yourself. One author writes that uh, we have to be a conduit of truth. Uh, as, as Timothy is getting these teachings, they have to flow then out of him. And it's the same for us as believers today. Uh, we find a self-accountability and a self-examination aspect here for Timothy. He has to look at himself and see, okay, these, these teachings that I know, am I sharing them uh, with other people? Uh, if not, he would be just like the hypocritical liars that we find causing problems in verse 2. Uh, he can't just proclaim something without heeding it himself. Uh, in order to be an effective leader, he must grow himself. He must train himself to seek godliness. And the word that Paul uses here for train himself, I'm going to get a little fancy, is a present imperative. I'm, I'm actually trying to sound smart, but really that word just means that it's a call for continuous action. It's something ongoing. So as Timothy uh, trains to be godly, it's something that he has to continuously do. Paul uses an athletic metaphor here. Uh, just like the athlete has to train himself to be quicker, faster, more accurate, stronger, uh, Timothy and even us today as believers have to train ourselves to be godly. We can't just uh, do something one time. We can't just pray once and say, oh, well, I'm godly. We have to continuously do this. We have to live this out. Um, verse 8, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So, Again, Paul's continuing with this athletic metaphor. He says physical training, bodily exercise, sure, it's, it's beneficial somewhat, but godliness, that's what it's really all about, Timothy. That'll help you in this life and the next. So what is godliness? Well, this word that Paul uses for godliness, it refers to one's inner response to God, an inner response and a desire to show reverence to him. So it's a life centered on God a life that's uh, full of continuous effort to honor him. It's our spiritual disciplines that we engage in in order to know him. It's the actions that we take in order to glorify him. Uh, but the fact that this godliness has promised for this life and the next, what, is, what does Paul mean here? What, what is he saying? Uh, well, in the Gospel of John, just a, a book on the life of Jesus, uh, it records him as saying, I come that they may have life, life to the fullest, life more abundantly a life of joy and peace and love. And we see this echoed throughout Scripture. Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. 1 Peter 1, 8, though you don't see him now, that being Jesus, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Godliness has value in this life because we get to experience the love of Christ. And with that, we have joy and we have peace and we have hope. Maybe you've heard uh, stories of people who are very rich and successful and famous who say, I've achieved everything that I thought I wanted and yet I still feel like I'm lacking something. There's still this deep inner longing inside of me. But us as believers, that longing has been filled. No matter what situations we encounter in our life, we have an overarching 
hope. So that's how godliness helps in this life. But what about the life to come? Well, that's pretty easy. Uh, going back to John in the third chapter, the 16th, 16th verse, maybe you can recite it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We get to spend eternity with God, no second death, no separation, just living in his glory and his presence forever. So this godliness, as one author says, colors all aspects of temporary and eternal life. Godliness bestows its blessing on all it touches. And Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves acceptance. Um, well, honestly, again, here, Paul, his writing's a little vague. We don't know if that means what he just said or what he's about to say. So I'll just draw emphasis on both. You know, godliness helps with this life and the next. And this is a trustworthy saying. But also, this is a trustworthy saying, what I'm about to say, so, so listen closely, Timothy, verse 10, this is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, command and teach these things. This is why we labor and strive for godliness, right, in verse 8, this is why we labor and strive for godliness, because our hope is in the living God, a God who's alive, a God who makes us alive. I love Paul's focus here, how it's on the resurrection. Uh, Jesus was uh, walking amongst these people because this was written in the first century, 30, uh, 40 years ago. And Paul says, yeah, this man that we know of who was just here with us, he, he did get brutally beaten and we know he died. He was crucified, but we also know that he's alive again. And because he's alive again, because he's a living God, we have hope. This is why we labor and strive. This is how we can labor and strive, what makes our, our struggle possible, this, this hope. This is from Paul, so maybe he could even word it, Timothy, this is why I can be beaten. This is why I can be thrown in jail. This is why I can be shipwrecked time and time again and still continuously seek to know God more and more and to share his love with everybody that I can because our hope is in a living God labor and strive here. It means to work intensely, uh, to struggle. Again, some scholars suggest that Paul is continuing this athletic metaphor here in this wording, and we have an image of an athlete straining every muscle in their body to achieve victory, and in, in the same sense, we as believers, we, we strain and we strive and we labor for godliness to follow the Lord. And he says, Timothy, teach and command these things. Remember, the goal is to point people to Jesus. Uh, people are being deceived, so how do we, how do we counteract that? We'll, we'll teach and command the truth and let it be evident before them. Um, incorrect doctrine and, and old wives' tales, godless myths, that's what's being taught. Well, no, Timothy, I want you to teach truth. Teach and command it. And again, we have to remember context. Timothy's a church leader, so this doesn't necessarily apply to all of us. We might not all find ourselves teaching in church. Uh, but there are, there are plenty of, uh, you know, church leaders in here, elders, Pastor Chris. So this is a good reminder uh, to, to the leadership. Sometimes there's a place for commanding, for being firm, but there's also a time to teach and instruct. Um, one example may be two people who are in error, and one knows right from wrong and is doing what they're doing purposefully, and the other is uh, ignorant of what's right. And so with the first, maybe you do have to be firm and command, hey, stop doing what you know to be wrong. But with the other, you might come alongside and encourage them, teach them gently, give them instruction and say, hey, you know, this is where 
uh, you're having a misunderstanding. Uh, but again, that verse might not necessarily hold implications for all of us, but this next verse, verse 12, I want to draw your attention. I think it does. Don't let anyone look down on you because you were young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Uh, I think that first part is funny. Uh, we oftentimes draw emphasis on it. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Uh, it brings to mind a story. One time I was playing video games with my little brother, TJ. He's actually sitting right over here in the audience. And I was stuck on a particular uh, level. I just absolutely could not get past it. And he's telling me what to do beside me. He's saying, hey, you need to do it this way. You need to do it this way. And I'm just like, hush, you little kid. You don't know what you're talking about. I've been playing video games since before you were born. Like, I can handle this. And sure enough, I, I couldn't. I continued to, to die and fail the level. And finally, I just handed him the controller. I'm like, okay, you think you know what you're talking about? Do it. And sure enough, he uh, actually got past the part that I couldn't. Um, but I'm like, he, he's just a little kid. He's younger than me. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, oftentimes, even in our culture, uh, age equals respect. And it was the same uh, in, in this culture, but probably magnified a little bit more. Uh, the older you were, the more wisdom you were thought to have, the more respect you would garner from those around you. And we don't know Timothy's exact age, but we can gather from what we're reading. Uh, he was probably younger than the average age of the community leaders, of the church leaders. So he was likely struggling with people respecting his authority and his position. And, and Paul gives him a word of encouragement. He says, hey, these people, you know, they, they don't put much stock in your youth. Uh, they might consider it a liability. But Timothy, you consider it an, an asset. Um, don't, don't be discouraged. Instead, set an example for all that you do. And on one hand, this is, this is the Timothy. Hey, set an example so that these people who doubt you and, and don't really respect you, they'll have nothing to hold against you if, if you live right. They will see this. But also, I think there's a, such a big truth here that applies to all of us today. We are to set an example in all aspects of our lives of Christian values in our speech, in our conduct, love, faith, and purity, we're to set an example to all those around us, everybody who can see us. In speech, this refers to our conversation in general, how we talk to others, the words that we use. We should be building people up rather than tearing people down. Paul says, use your tongue to set an example. And then we have conduct, and this refers to our way of life, our behavior, the activities we engage in. And Paul says, hey, Timothy, don't engage in, you know, sinful or harmful behavior, but use your conduct to set an example. And then we have love. This is in reference to others, how we treat people. Maybe you've read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, oftentimes referred to as the love chapter. You should read it if you haven't, but Paul fully describes love. Uh, but it explains how we should treat others. We should be kind. We should not envy others. We shouldn't remember their wrongdoings. Paul says, hey, love others in a way that sets an example. Faith. Uh, this is our trust and our hope in Christ, even our faithfulness to him. No matter our situations, we should continue to have belief in his promises. Uh, and we should continuously be obedient to his commands. He says, in your faith, Timothy, set an example. And lastly, Impurity. This is upright and morally blameless life. It's not that we never make mistakes, but that we continuously strive to, to be above reproach and to live in a God-honoring way so that people can't look at us and, and point out faults and, and damage our witness. Paul says, hey, live pure in a way that sets an example. And if I had to choose something, this is what I think is Paul's main lesson here to Timothy. He says, yeah, People are being deceived, lies and, and falsehoods are being told. But Timothy, 
Strive for godliness, seek after truth, and exemplify it to everyone around you. Put this truth on display in all aspects of your life, how you live and, and how you talk so that everyone can see it. Um, again, verse two says that these false teachers are hypocritical liars. So not only were they teaching incorrectly, but their actions also weren't even lining up with what they were teaching. They were hypocrites. But uh, Paul says, Timothy, don't do this. Um, nourish yourself on the truths of faith and on good teachings, like in verse six, uh, and let it be evident for those around you. Uh, and honestly, I could just say, you know, go home at this point, like that's just so good, but we still have, uh, we still have more verses that we have to finish. Uh, picking up 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And again, this goes back to context. Paul is specifically telling Timothy uh, to preach, to read scripture publicly, uh, to teach while Timothy waits for the arrival of Paul. You know, that's not necessarily applying to us. And we find that at some point uh, when Timothy was commissioned to lead, there were a body of elders who prophesied over him. That doesn't necessarily apply to us. We don't have to experience that same thing in order to become believers or to preach the gospel. Um, but Paul tells Timothy, be diligent in these matters so that everyone can see your progress. If you live out these instructions that I'm giving you, then all those people who are doubting you, who aren't respecting you, well, uh, that issue will be solved. That issue of low credibility, it'll be fixed. Um, Paul says that if Timothy watches his life and doctrine, so his, his teachings and his actions, if Timothy perseveres in those, then he'll save himself and his hearers. And this is like a final exclamation point on what Paul has been saying. Uh, people are being deceived, but you do what's right. Train yourself, strive after godliness yourself, and, and set an example for everyone else. Well, they'll be saved. And just like verse one, this isn't necessarily talking about salvation, but they'll be saved from these false teachers, from these lies, from these deceptions, uh, this deception. You can, you can do something about that, Timothy. Uh, this example that you set, it'll, it'll illuminate the truth. It'll be evident before them. So growing up, I, um, I grew up with my grandparents. Uh, my mother and my father weren't in a uh, position to take care of me. Uh, and so I, we faced lots of interesting problems, me and my siblings, that maybe not everyone goes through. Uh, but my grandparents, um, throughout all of that, consistently lived a godly life. Um, whenever we would uh, face hardships or, or a challenge, they would point us back to the scripture uh, in, in ways that they treated other people, how they loved others. It was all based on scripture and the word of God. They truly showed me, and I believe my siblings as well, what it means to follow God, to love God, to trust God. They exemplified all the things that they were teaching us. And so when I would hear uh, lies, uh, maybe through social media or society or whatever, about God or, or Jesus or, or whatever, not being real or whatever, I could, I could look at my grandparents and say, no, I know that's not true because I see the truth. I see it. It's evident in them through their faith and their commitment to Jesus. We know that the enemy is still trying to deceive today. The Bible says that he is uh, going around seeking to kill, to steal, and destroy. 
but I can stand here and tell you today that we can save people who hear and see us by setting an example. I can stand here and say that because it happened to me. I was able to see an example before me as I grew up. Um, and, and it helped me. It, it saved me from lies and, and deception of the enemies. Um, so church, I think that when we read this chapter, uh, it's pretty evident that we are called to do the same thing. And that's First Timothy chapter 4. Uh, let's pray.